Ladies and gentlemen, I once again welcome you on behalf of all the radio. Now, I will request Justice Chandra Chur to resume his second and the concluding portion of his lecture. Justice Chandra Chur. Ladies and gentlemen, towards the close of my lecture last evening, I said that I will discuss a few decisions of the Supreme Court which I will proceed to do after drawing your attention to some of the directive principles. The directive principles of state policy, which are enunciated in part four of the Constitution, are not enforceable by any court, but they occupy a unique place of honor in our Constitution. Article 37 of the Constitution provides that the provisions of part 4 shall not be enforceable by any court, but that the principles therein laid down are nevertheless fundamental in the governance of the country, and it shall be the duty of the state to apply these principles in making laws. Surely, what is fundamental in the governance of the country cannot be any the less important than, say, the rights which are conferred by the Constitution on individuals. The directive principles must act as a beacon light in the making of laws, which means that the laws enacted by our legislatures must try to achieve the goal envisaged by the directive principles. Indeed, an eminent counsel advanced an argument in the Supreme Court, which was not dealt with by the court in its judgment, that a law which is contrary to or is not in conformity with the principles enunciated in part 4 must be struck down as unconstitutional. The argument which the Supreme Court may have to consider on an appropriate occasion is, this is all India Radio that though a citizen may not have the right to ask for a writ to compel the legislature to pass a law to implement any of the directive principles, the court would be entitled and indeed bound to strike down the law as invalid if it conflicts with any of the directive principles of state policy. The relevant directive principles may be briefly stated thus. Article 38.1 provides that the state shall strive to promote the welfare of the people by securing and protecting as effectively as it may a social order in which justice, social, economic and political shall inform all the institutions of the national life. Article 38.2 enjoins the state to strive to minimize the inequalities in income and endeavor to eliminate inequalities in status, facilities and opportunities, not only amongst individuals, but also amongst groups of people residing in different areas or engaged in different vocations. Article 39 contains six clauses which provide that the state shall in particular direct its policy towards securing that the citizens, men and women equally, have the right to an adequate means of livelihood, that the ownership and control of the material resources of the community are so distributed as best to subserve the common good, that the operation of the economic system does not result 
in the concentration of wealth and means of production to the common detriment that there is equal pay for equal work for both men and women that the health and strength of workers men and women and the tender age of children are not abused and that citizens are not forced by economic necessity to enter avocations unsuited to their age or strength and that children are given opportunities and facilities to develop in a healthy manner and in conditions of freedom and dignity and that childhood and youth are protected against exploitation and against moral and material abandonment article 39a provides for equal justice and free legal aid article 41 provides for the right to work and to education article 42 for just and humane conditions of work and maternity relief article 43 for a living wage for workers article 43a for participation of workers in management of industries article 44 for a uniform civil code article 45 for free and compulsory education for children while article 46 provides for promotion of educational and economic interests of scheduled castes scheduled tribes and other weaker sections the effective 15 articles in part 4 of the constitution articles 37 to 51 recite that the state shall strive or endeavor or take steps or direct its policy towards securing the objects specified in those articles these directive principles expressed in terms pithy and visionary the goal which the founding fathers set before themselves the supreme court has over the years rendered epoch making judgments which have in an appreciable measure to achieve that goal i will turn to some of those landmark judgments keshavananda bharati's case known commonly as the fundamental rights case was decided by a bench of 13 judges of the supreme court in april 1973 it was a marathon case the arguments having lasted for about 70 working days this is 70 4 1/2 hours each day which occupied the court's time for 5 months those 5 months were full of excitement and unusual happenings which culminated in a majority judgment of 7 to 6 holding that the power to amend the constitution conferred on the parliament by article 368 cannot be exercised so as to damage or destroy the basic structure of the constitution what precisely constitutes the basic structure of the constitution did not fall to be decided in that case and was not therefore decided in subsequent decisions the supreme court has attempted to describe the essential features of the constitution which constitute its basic structure like the right to equality the right to life and liberty and the democratic pattern of the indian polity 11 judgments were delivered in keshavananda bharati consuming 700 printed pages which in retrospect appears to be an excessive indulgence in the use of intellect learning and stationery that performance was better in the subsequent case the judges transfer case in which the judgments run into 1100 pages i believe that in keshavananda bharati 
we could have condensed our performance to half its length without impairing the value of our findings and the wisdom of our observations. But the court worked under an unusual pressure, the pressure of time, not of external politics. And the deadline was set by the impending retirement of Chief Justice Sikri on 24th April 1973, evolving the largest agreement among the 13 learned men of law became an illusory affair, resulting in the undesirable consequence of each for himself. It was for the first time in the history of the court that almost the entire complement of judges sat to hear a case, and two more judges had to be appointed as ad hoc judges to assist the 14 judge to hear the other cases, including admissions. The American system of limiting the oral arguments to just half an hour cannot possibly be imposed in the Indian setting, especially in view of the incredible, incredible volume of work which the judges in our country have to handle. The American Supreme Court decides without any oral hearing at all as to how many cases will be admitted to hearing. It admits no more cases than it can reasonably dispose of in the following session. In India, oral hearing at every stage of a case has become a part and parcel of the basic structure of the legal system. It is heartening to find that the Supreme Court is gradually but surely allowing less and less time for oral arguments as a matter of practice and convention. Shastrat Rudihi Bariyasi. Conventions are stronger than rules. So goes the Sanskrit saying. Conventions succeed where rules fail. One of the decisions of the Supreme Court in which the question as to what constitutes the basic structure of the Constitution arose in sharp focus was the election appeal in the case of Mrs. Indira Gandhi. Parliament in the exercise of its constituent power, passed the 39th Constitution Amendment Act 1975, introducing Article 329A into the Constitution. By that article, the election of the Prime Minister and Speaker of the Lok Sabha to either House of Parliament was put beyond the pale of challenge by withdrawal of the application of election laws to such elections. Article 329A was declared as invalid by the majority of three out of five judges on the ground that the provision contained therein was destructive of the rule of law, the democratic structure of the constitution and the right to fair and free elections which were parts of the basic structure of the constitution. In Suryal Batra's cases, the convict who was under a sentence of death challenged his confinement in a solitary cell. Section 30, subsection 2 of the Prisoners Act provides that every prisoner under a sentence of death shall be confined in a separate cell under the charge of a guard. Justice Krishna Iyer, speaking for the court, said that confinement in a separate cell does not mean solitary confinement and that prisoners were not denuded of all fundamental rights by mere reason of their conviction. 
Justice Krishnaya was genuinely committed to the cause of social justice and he virtually carried on a crusade for upholding that cause. Even as Justice Suvarao crusaded relentlessly for upholding the fundamental rights of the citizens. The contribution of neither the one nor the other to the growth and development of constitution law should be belittled merely because they both flirted with politics by contesting the presidential poll. I should not have used the word flirted, but that is how Justice Krishnayar, the coiner of words that he was, would himself have expressed the involvement of a judge in his politics. In his imitable, inimitable language, Justice Ayer said in Sunil Batra's case, and I quote, Prisoners have enforceable liberties, devalued maybe, but not demonetized. And under a basic scheme, prison power must bow before the judge power if fundamental freedoms are in jeopardy. Unquote. He proceeded to add that the great problems of law were the grave crisis of life and both could be solved not by literal instructions of printed enactments but by interpretative sensitization of the heart to the still sad music of humanity. In Maneka Gandhi's case, a bench of seven judges held by a majority of six to one that the expression personal liberty in Article 21 was of the widest amplitude and covered a variety of rights which added up to constitute the liberty of an individual. That Articles 19 and 21 were not mutually exclusive and that the procedure contemplated by Article 21 must be reasonable, fair and just, not capricious, whimsical or arbitrary. Therefore, what Article 21 which provides that no person shall be deprived of his life or personal liberty except according to procedure established by law means is that the procedure by which life or liberty is this taken is away or abridged must be reasonable, fair and just. The decision in Maneka Gandhi brings to mind the famous words of Justice Vivian Bose, a lord of the language and a treasure of thoughts in Anwar Ali Sarkar's case to the effect that it does not matter how lofty and laudable the motives of the government are. Justice Vivian Bose said, and I quote, the question with which I charge myself is, can fair-minded, reasonable, unbiased and resolute men who are not swayed by emotion or prejudice regard this with equanimity and call it reasonable, just and fair? regard it as that equal treatment and protection in the defense of liberties which is expected of a sovereign democratic republic in the conditions which obtain in India today. I have but one answer to that. On that short and simple ground, I would decide this case and hold the act bad." Unquote. Public interest litigation is a novel and striking extension of the functioning of the courts particularly the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court accepts grievances made, inform, made informally through telegrams, letters and unsworn petitions, inquires into them and gives prompt and effective relief 
purists cast grave doubts on this modality of functioning by the highest court on the ground that the innovation is capable of great abuse at the hands of busy bodies and intermediaries these doubts are not wholly unfounded because in practice some of the complaints made to the court are discovered to be motivated and frivolous this is but then even suits and writ petitions filed with all the formality and solemnity imaginable are not unoften found to be frivolous and inspired by ulterior motives the fact that a forum for justice is misused does not justify the closing of the doors of justice in our conditions where poverty want destitution oppression and illiteracy are rampant it is the bounden obligation of courts to offer assistance to the greatest extent possible and at the least expense conceivable to all those who cannot afford the luxury of formal litigation litigation is after all an expensive pursuit for a variety of reasons not merely because of the long and interminable delays involved in the disposal of cases and the high incidence of court fees therefore even though public interest litigation may like public policy be an unruly horse the answer is to keep the horse under control by riding it skillfully and not to bold a horse in the stable justice delayed is justice denied justice denied by closing the doors of the courts is infinitely worse the supreme court may with advantage frame rules to regulate the acceptance and disposal of public interest litigation so so as to avoid the charge that activist groups who shout the loudest get a hearing in preference to the lowly and humble individuals who are unorganized and that judges who deal with public interest litigation launched informally combine in themselves the role of the accuser and the judge which is contrary to the fundamental principles of natural justice numerous decisions of great consequence have been rendered by the supreme court through the medium of public interest litigation and what is important from the broader point of view of justice is that those decisions have come incredibly quickly and have involved the least expense easy accessibility expeditious disposal effective relief and small expense are the hallmarks of the exciting experiment of public interest litigation on which the supreme court has launched under trial prisoners languishing in jails for periods longer than the sentences which would be imposed on them if found guilty have been released by the supreme court Article 32 of the Constitution has been declared to be available even against private parties if fundamental rights are infringed as in the Asian Games case. Juvenile under trial prisoners have been sent to children's homes to prevent their exploitation in jails. Bonded laborers have been released from their bondage. Lowly paid workers have been directed to be paid the minimum wage. ecological balance has been restored and environment protected 
Reservation for scheduled castes and scheduled tribes has been enforced in public employment. Slum dwellers have been rehabilitated on alternate sites to the extent possible. And benign schemes have been evolved for enabling hawkers to do their business. These striking results have been achieved by expanding the frontiers of the principle of locus standi. In the Sindri fertilizer case, the right of the workers to challenge the sale of a factory was recognized. A judicious use of this new jurisdiction will undoubtedly serve a high social purpose of great significance and utility to the needy sections of society. Though the warning uttered by Justice Patak, now Chief Justice of India, is well, is well worth remembering. I quote, this is what Justice Patak says, Amidst this welter of agitated controversy, I think it appropriate to set down a few considerations which seem to be relevant if public interest litigation is to command a broad acceptance. The history of human experience shows that when a revolution in ideas and in action enters the life of a nation, the nascent power so released possesses the potential of throwing the prevailing social order into disarray. In a changing society, wisdom dictates that reform should emerge in the existing polity as an ordered change produced through its institutions. Moreover, the pace of change needs to be handled with care, lest the institutions themselves be endangered." Unquote. Even the critics of the court, particularly of its handling of public interest litigation, have a word of praise for the court when it directs that the basic amenities of life must be supplied to the inmates of an ashram for destitute women. But even the friends of the court raise their eyebrows when the court enters into the question as to what kind of napkins should be supplied to the inmates. The issuance of directions, this is all the execution of which cannot be supervised or ensured by the court, dilutes the authority of the court because such minute directions can easily be got around. The activism of the court is a welcome advance, but legal principles should not be sacrificed on the altar of populist sentiments and personal predilections. I believe that so far the Supreme Court has struck a careful and happy balance in this sensitive area which has witnessed the opening up of a new dimension of administration of justice. Activism is to be welcomed based on the sound and solid foundation of reason, logic and experience. The mere display of it which is founded upon passing emotions will not help brighten the image of the court. Indeed, it may tarnish its great traditions and endanger its future credibility. The temptation for the limelight is too great to resist at any level. And even judicial power, unregulated by known rules and unrestrained, except by what each judge considers to be right or wrong, can be capable of harm to the cause of justice itself. The unguided foot of the Chancellor 
is easily liable to slip but then judges today are called upon to discharge out of court functions which they undertake out of a sense of duty to the extent that such functions involve determination of facts the judges are well equipped to discharge those functions but when such assignments involve pronouncements on policies judges have a delicate task to perform for which they are neither suited either by training or by expertise judges do discharge even such functions with admirable aloofness and ability but such extracurricular involvements needlessly lend a political flavor to their functioning which inevitably though unfairly sticks to them when they resume their normal duties in the process institutions more than individuals suffer there are two other movement to which i must refer the legal aid movement and the lok adalat movement article 39a of the constitution which was inserted by the 42nd constitution amendment with effect from 3rd january 1977 provides that the state shall secure that the operation of the legal system promotes justice on a basis of equal opportunity and shall in particular provide free legal aid by suitable legislation or schemes or in any other way to ensure that opportunities for securing justice are not denied to any citizen by reason of economic or other disabilities a large number of well intended steps have been taken by the central and state governments to initiate legal aid schemes voluntary organizations also take a keen and healthy interest in providing legal aid to the needy but it is necessary to secure greater involvement of lawyers of standing and eminence in the legal aid movement if it is to serve its true purpose this is all india radio junior members of the bar do not lack competence and they have more time and energy to devote to their briefs they could also show and a few of them do in fact show a greater sense of social commitment as professionals especially since they have grown in the culture of the constitution but there are cases which involve a high risk to the individual litigant like the criminal cases in which an accused is charged of murder enthusiasm has to be backed by experience for handling complicated cases competently and at least in this class of cases senior lawyers ought to appear through legal aid agencies experience belies the charge that senior and eminent lawyers do not accept legal aid briefs they seldom decline to accept free briefs for the poor but what is necessary for the success of the legal aid movement is the systematic and concerted involvement of senior and junior lawyers alike senior lawyers could refute the charge that they are lukewarm in accepting legal aid briefs by systematically seeking such briefs say once a week rather than being sought after and discovered by legal aid sales legal aid workers ought to be able to devote their time 
to organizational work rather than in pursuing and persuading senior lawyers to work out free briefs. It is said that in countries like England, America and Australia, legal aid has led to a sharp increase in the volume of litigation, part of which is frivolous. This Indeed, in the Conference of Commonwealth Chief Justices, which was held in Delhi in March 1984, under the auspices of the Supreme Court of India, the Chief Justice of Australia, Sir Garfield Barwick, asked the gathering of the Chief Justices, well, do your countries suffer from legal aid? My answer was emphatically in the negative, especially since the legal aid movement is still in its nascent stage in India. The disease, if it is a disease, is too early to, to diagnose in our country. As Lord Denning says, since the Second World War, the greatest revolution in the law has been the system of legal aid. We in India must catch up with that revolution. Many issues of national importance have reached the courts through public interest litigation sponsored by legal aid bodies. Those issues would otherwise have remained unresolved. The system of legal aid is capable of abuse, but the remedy is to minimize the abuse and not to wind up a program which, if worked honestly and in a spirit of public service, will fulfill one of the grand objects of the Constitution as reflected in Article 39A. Justice for the common man is the watchword of the Constitution. Lokadalat and legal aid are parts of an integrated scheme designed to achieve the goal of superior justice at the least cost to those who cannot afford the time and expense involved in the usual hierarchy of litigation. In recent months, an appreciable volume of litigation has been disposed of by Lok Adalat in areas like motor accident claims. The response of public sector undertakings like the Life Insurance Corporation is encouraging in these matters and it is to be expected that other public bodies like the city transport corporations and railways will take a pragmatic and just view of the responsibilities and not waste their time and money in raising technical defenses which are calculated to deny justice to the victims of accidents and to their dependents. Lok Adalas will now be institutionalized under the law, which it is hoped will help remove the anomalies and risks from which that system also suffers. Compromises and settlements have to be brought about by persuasion. Parties ought not to be forced into settlements just for the sake of statistics. Otherwise, litigation will increase instead of decreasing by driving parties to take resort to the courts for challenging settlements made before the Lok Adalas. Enforced settlements only serve to multiply litigation, giving to a good system a bad name by reason of the misplaced enthusiasm of lay and misdirected mediators. 
the judiciary has played a significant role in achieving these constitutional objectives. As I said earlier, it is inevitable that judges are drawn into a public controversy while discharging their functions, especially when they do make law and not merely interpret it. Indeed, Professor Upendra Bakshi has said in his critical introduction to Justice Matthews' book on democracy, equality and freedom that, and I quote, judges of the Indian Supreme Court have demonstrated this truth not merely by creating law but also by creating constitution. They have not just amply exercised their legislative power but they have also exercised constituent power. This latter proposition may well appear controversial, but its truth will sooner or later have to be acknowledged, as surely as the truth of the proposition now universally accepted that appellate judges make law." Unquote. It is, however, to be remembered, as Professor Bakshi says, that in their quest for rule of law and justice, Indian judges and jurists need to self-consciously evolve some degree of consensus on the basic norms of judicial craftsmanship. The Bhagarpur blinding cases involving identical issues were going on simultaneously before two separate benches of the Supreme Court for quite some time. I am thankful to you, ladies and gentlemen, for the patience with which you have heard me. I guess that you could easily have spent these two evenings more pleasurably, perhaps in discussing judges for their newfangled beliefs and practices, rather than hearing one of their species who has now the advantage of having enough time for indulging in retrospection and introspection. Retrospection recalls happy memories. Introspection invokes a few regrets. This is All India Radio Archives recording. Has the Supreme Court, if I may ask a question before I conclude, has the Supreme Court measured up to the expectations of the people? A cynic has said that the founding fathers of the Constitution must be turning in their graves on seeing the assumption and exercise of such vast powers by the Supreme Court. That is a wholly unfounded charge. On the other hand, an admirer of the court has said that the founding fathers must be showering petals of roses on the grand temple of justice on seeing its scintillating achievements over the last 37 years. This too is an over-generous tribute. Rose petals, occasionally, yes, but not like a part of the daily morning worship. The expectations entertained of the court and expressed on the occasion of the inauguration of the Supreme Court on the 26th of January 1950 by the first Prime Minister of India, Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, by the first Chief Justice of India, Sri Harilal Khania, and by a distinguished jurist, Motilal Setlwad, the
the first attorney general of india have been fulfilled in a substantial measure thanks mainly to the efforts of the pre 1970 judges whose creativity was not hampered by the unending avalanche of special leave petitions they had enough elbow room for originality through their learning and their labor through their independence and their intellectual integrity they took the court as near the cherished goal as lay in their hands but in matters of institutional achievement enough is not enough the court has still to achieve the goal of providing easy quick and cheap justice to the common man it will be a happy day when rid of the tremendous trifles by which it is bogged the supreme court will be able to find time enough to realize its full potential by contributing creatively to a new jurisprudence which will fulfill the aspirations of the constitution ladies and gentlemen may i close by drawing your overtaxed attention to an extract from albert camus's letters to a german friend camus says in one of his letters to his german friend and i quote you said to me the greatness of my country is beyond price anything is good that contributes to its greatness and in a world where everything has lost its meaning those who like us young germans are lucky enough to find a meaning in the destiny of our nation must sacrifice everything else this is what the friend said to albert camus camus replied i loved you then but at that point we diverged and i told you no i cannot believe that everything must be subordinated to a single end there are means that cannot be excused and i should like to be able to love my country and still love justice i don't want just any greatness for it particularly a greatness born of blood and falsehood i want to keep it alive by keeping justice alive thank you very much Ladies and gentlemen, yesterday and today, we had the privilege of listening to Justice Chandrachur's speech, the basics of Indian Constitution, its search for social justice, and the role of judges. The learned speaker had taken us to those historic days when the Constitution of India was drafted. He mentioned the events. which led to the protection of human rights in our constitution he has also pointed out that fundamental rights and directive principles of the state policy are the pillars around which the basics of indian constitutions revolve he has explained how articles 14 to 17 19 21 25 30 31c and 32 form the cornerstone of indian constitution the importance of fundamental rights and their enforcement were discussed as also the fundamental duties 
Justice Chandrachur has highlighted the important role played by the judiciary in the protection of fundamental rights. He has also examined at length the concept of the judge as a lawmaker. He has also discussed law as a developing science and new dimensions of public interest litigation. These lectures have been thought-provoking and educative. I take this opportunity on behalf of All India Radio and myself to thank Justice Y. V. Chandrachur for sharing his valuable thoughts with all of us and also our listeners. I also thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your participation in this program. Thank you very much.